Dr. Holly Richmond is a somatic psychotherapist, licensed marriage and family therapist, and certified sex therapist. This unique combination of credentials enables her to focus on clients' cognitive processes as well as mind-body health. She works with women, men, couples, and gender-diverse individuals on relationship and sexuality issues, offering sex therapy and sexual health coaching nationally and internationally. Her treatment specialties include low libido, sexual dysfunction, compulsive sexuality, desire discrepancy in couples, recovery from sexual assault and abuse, which we'll get into on today's episode, and alternative non-traditional sexual expression. Her newly released book, Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex-positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life, is an innovative look at both somatic and psychological factors in survivors' erotic recovery. This episode is so juicy, and I am so excited to introduce Dr. Holly Richmond to the show. I am with Dr. Holly Richmond. She is a somatic psychotherapist licensed marriage and family therapist, PhD, and certified sex therapist. Welcome to the show, Dr. Holly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Likewise. Do you mind telling our listeners about what you do, how you got into your work, and just the field in general that you're in? Absolutely. So I I think the easiest, so I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, but I would say I spend most of my time doing sex therapy. Um, So what that is, it's still talk therapy, but because of the marriage and family part and the somatic part, I'm really weaving in both of those elements. So I would say about 65 or 70% of my clients are survivors of sexual trauma. And the other percentage, I see a ton of couples or people with sexuality issues, pain during sex, fetishes, kinks, um, desire discrepancy, and just typical couples issues. Mm, beautiful. It's. I was talking about this earlier with you, but that's exactly what I would love to do. So I'm so happy to have you on. A majority of my listeners actually also are survivors of interpersonal trauma, a lot of it sexual in nature. So we were talking about your book, Reclaiming Pleasure. I'd love for you to discuss the book, what inspired you to write the book, and really what listeners can expect if they read the book. Sure, sure. Thank you for that question. So I did, um, I got licensed, the marriage and family therapy license in the state of California. And in California, you have to do 3,000 hours of internship. So I did those 3,000 hours at a rape crisis center. And while I was there, um, I decided to pursue my dissertation um, and but quickly learned I was taught very well how to treat trauma, but I wasn't specifically taught how to treat what comes next. Mm. So healthy sexuality, um, healthy relationships, people really detaching from shame. Um, I feel like, you know, the trauma work, especially the crisis counseling, which is, you know, right after a rape or sexual assault or sexual abuse, you're really just helping survivors get their feet back on the ground, which is so important. Now, the long-term work was a little bit more of the deep psychological practice, but I didn't have the tools through that sex therapy lens. And that's why I was like, oh my gosh, I have to study the body and I have to study sex therapy so I can put this whole healing picture together. Mm, Yeah. It's so integrative, right? Because A lot of times, I feel like at least when I was studying sex therapy, a lot of it's focused on couples. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, 
when we talk about sex, we need to address sexual abuse because so many people experience sexual trauma. So I love that you incorporated all three of those because so much from my own experience, healing from sexual trauma has been psychosomatic. We have so many, the mind, the body, it's all intertwined. So what would you say you see as a common theme in survivors of sexual assault, rape, um, what do they struggle with most after the incident? I, I really appreciate that you said that, um, and that is almost all survivors experience. The problem is we don't link our symptoms to the trauma. We end up thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? Why do I feel this way? Why does my stomach hurt? Why am I so anxious? We don't link it to the trauma. So that's really in Reclaiming Pleasure, the book. I wanted to highlight that so people can feel validated. Mm -hmm. um, Lauren, I'm a somaticizer, and I didn't know that until I really started studying somatic psychology. So what that means, and this is still true in all the work that I've done, we're never done doing the work. My body will tell me something is wrong before my brain catches up to it. Right. So I'm just moving through the world over functioning half the time. Right. Doing doing too many things, working hard like we all do in our culture. Um, and my body will find its pain point and whisper and then knock and then push me over <laughs> if I don't listen to it. Yeah. So before I was, you know, in chronic pain, really struggling, food issues, pain issues, but I, I called it my poison worm. And this pain point would just kind of like roam around my body. Like, I'm not kidding. My chest would hurt for a couple weeks and then my stomach would ache and then it would be knees and then it would be head. And I would go to the doctor, not like compulsively, but enough. And I was always told nothing's wrong with you. That's the worst. It's so invalidating. Yeah. And it, you, sometimes you want to hear that something is wrong because then it makes you feel less crazy. Right, mm -hmm. right. So, of course, something was wrong. So I want your listeners to hear the pain is real. Your symptoms are real. It's just understanding the root cause. And sometimes there is a physiological cause, and that's extremely important to understand. And sometimes there's a psychological cause, and that's equally important to understand. So I love that a few times you've used this word integrated. Um, that's the goal for me, for you, for my clients, is to get our mind and body on the same page. Mm, yes, taking that comprehensive approach. And I love that you do that. It, it shows that you're a great practitioner because a lot of times practitioners will solely focus on one rather than all together. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously I'm a therapist, so I can't touch, but I have a stack of collateral resources mm -hmm. that I refer to. So that can be pelvic floor therapy, Reiki, massage, mm -hmm. dietitians, acupuncture, sexological body workers, mm -hmm. surrogate partner therapists, if the, if the work really has to be sexual in nature. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, a lot of people are like, what does a sex therapist do? And they get these yeah. crazy ideas in their head. I'm like, I, you know, I don't <laughs> touch, but it's really, it's important for me to, I give homework about touch mm -hmm. and I can give um, resources for touch. Ooh, beautiful and healthy touch too. I feel like for me as a survivor, something that really helped me personally was getting massage and learning to be in that safe environment, of course, with a trusted massage therapist, because I wouldn't want to be re-traumatized. But I love that you offer those, um, for lack of better word, solutions or self-care tools to help people find what works for them, because everyone's different in their healing process. For sure. For sure. And um, yeah, massage can be really hard. Can you imagine if you were having 
um, pelvic floor pain, so if any kind of penetration felt pen painful, so vaginismus, dyspernia, going to a pelvic floor therapist where you're working with dilators, again, it takes so much um, bravery, um, courage, yeah. choice, you know, really keeping yourself in the moment, staying in your body, um, which for, for you too, massage, massage can also do that, but you, everything is with consent and I hope you use your voice the whole time. This feels good. This doesn't feel good. Yeah. yeah, that's been a struggle. And I find that with so many people who have been impacted by trauma is the loss of the voice and feeling like your say doesn't matter. Because oftentimes in cases of assault and rape, even if we say no, we that's disregarded, the person ignores it. And oftentimes we can freeze up as well that we can't even say stop or no, which is not our fault but it can make us feel completely removed from our bodies. Mm -hmm. That's, that's when that separation occurs and it, it can happen in an instance yeah. and it can take years and years to put it back together. Mm. Um, so I just want to say this for your listeners. It's, it's never too late to start your recovery and healing process. Um, on average, it takes survivors about 10 years before they find their way to me. This is that period where they're minimizing their trauma it's not validated. They're having all of these symptoms. And finally, those symptoms just get so painful that they're like, huh, I wonder if my childhood sexual abuse is linked to my lack of being able to sustain a healthy relationship. Yeah, that's huge. That is very often the case. How would you say if someone is experiencing these symptoms or just lack of um, satisfaction in their relationships or personal life? When would you say it's a good time to seek out professional help, such as a therapist? Mm -hmm. As soon as you have the awareness, as soon as you stop denying, as soon as that voice in your head settles down a little bit that says, you know, what's wrong with you? You're broken. You're crazy. Like as soon as that settles, even a little bit, I think reaching out for help can be so helpful. I just want to make a plug for sex positive therapists. Um, and I mean, many are, but a typical marriage and family therapist, someone trained in couples therapy, isn't necessarily going to be sex positive. By sex positive, I mean all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. Mm -hmm. So we don't make judgments about kinks, fetishes, gender, sexual expression. It's all good as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. And unfortunately, we live in a country where that's not always the case. So anyway, there's my plug. Uh, don't get me started, doctor. I actually went today to get my annual exam and there was people outside of my clinic with these signs, just like shaming. And it was just horrible. And I, I love that you made that distinction between sex positive therapy and therapists, because I always say the a good therapist can make the world of a difference, but a bad therapist could also set you back. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you imagine if you had a different sexual expression or because of your trauma, you had a kink or a proclivity that you had never said to anyone before and you came in and told a therapist and they didn't have a sex positive lens, how that could just like drive the shame home. I know. And I, a personal story with, I'll never forget. I never forget my therapist, good or bad. Um, but yeah. a few years after I was assaulted at 19, I blamed myself. My family blamed me, even my therapist. I think she was an LCSW. And she essentially was like, well, why didn't you do something or stop it? 
And it took me a couple of years. I went to a male therapist because I felt like I had a lot of healing to do with men. And he told me, this is not your fault. And I heard that for the first time. It brought me to tears. And I can't tell you the world of a difference that made for me because I really needed to hear that. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, And it sounds like you've done a lot of work. Yes. I would love to talk more about symptomology, um, such as pain and anxiety during sex or during solo sex or just anxiety in general after a traumatic incident. Can you talk more about the symptoms that occur um, in survivors after the trauma? I I absolutely can. Lauren, do you mind if I say one more thing about the blame from other people? Um, I don't care if you were sitting on a street corner naked. The only reason you would be raped is because a rapist walked by. Most people would have brought you a coat. So we just, with any kind of sexual trauma, it's putting the blame where it belongs, which is not with us. Even if we didn't say no, fight back, none of it is valid. If we didn't say yes, then we experienced sexual trauma. And there's no, how bad was it? Why didn't you, what were you wearing? How much were you drinking? Like it's all inconsequential, makes no difference whatsoever. Mm, Yes. So I'm, I'm sorry. I will go back to your question. I promise. But I just really want people to hear there's literally no reason anyone is raped, sexually assaulted, sexually abused other than the perpetrator. A hundred percent. I have goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. So the symptomology, this is big. And and again, really like my my area of focus and what I'm so interested in because I don't think it gets linked enough sexual trauma to these symptoms. So I look at four quadrants with that. It's emotional, physical, relational, and sexual. Mm -hmm. So the emotional are some of the the points that you already um, brought to light, a lot of anxiety, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, rumination, poor memory, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, suicidal ideation. um, Those are the big ones there. The physical we talked about at the beginning, um, irritable bowel syndrome, um, sleep disturbances. The biggest one that I just want to put a big star next to, um, eating disorders and disordered eating. So I rarely see a survivor that doesn't have something around eating or exercise. Mm-hmm. So an eating disorder, just to be clear, is, um, is a diagnosis that you need criteria to have an eating disorder. Now, that's not always the case, but what is almost always the case is disordered eating. So that would just be compulsivity, restriction, some kind of ritualistic behavior around food that one can't quite be diagnosed, but it's definitely disordered. Mm-hmm or exercise compulsivity. Um, So yeah, so that's another physical symptom for sure. Mm. The relational um, linking sex and love or completely not linking sex and love. So we compartmentalize it. I can love this person, but can't have sex with them. Or if I'm having sex with someone, I'm completely obsessed and I think I'm completely in love. insecure attachment styles. Uh, I'm trying to think what else, a lot of anger, depression, um, detachment, isolation. Uh, The sexual would be pain during sex, um, sexual aversion, uh, 
let me think of what else. Oh, just avoidance of sex or compulsivity around sex. So interesting, right? How it generally goes like one of two ways and they're polar opposites. <laughs> Absolutely. So chapter six in the book is called Uncovering Hidden Wounds. And I only mentioned a few of the symptoms, but it covers those four categories and, and discusses a little bit more about it. But Lauren, you are spot on. The symptoms, I feel like survivors have two choices. It either goes into complete constriction or it goes into chaos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So I forgot to say substance abuse. Oh my gosh, for sure substance abuse is there too. It's interesting because a lot of them kind of center around lack of boundaries, whether that's with ourselves or with other people. Mm -hmm. And I feel yes. like that kind of speaks to the trauma because when we are sexually violated, our boundaries are completely ignored and disregarded. Yeah. So then the choice is I have super rigid boundaries and no one gets in. These are the survivors that are very in control, very isolated, not a lot of pleasure get, getting into their life. Or the opposite is the chronic people pleaser. I have no boundaries. Whatever you need, I'll do. Just love me and tell me that I'm good and I'm conflict avoidant. Ooh, I could talk about this for hours. Everything you're saying is just like leading me into so many different directions. When it comes to sexual health after sexual assault, which you wrote your dissertation on, I would love to read it, by the way. Um, how do we learn to recover our sexual health and get in touch with our sexual selves? Like, What are the first or most crucial steps to doing so? That's, that's a great question, and that's really, again, what my dissertation and the grounded theory analysis looked at. So um, this isn't one of the steps, but I just want to highlight part of the process. It's really seeing the difference between sexual health and sexual trauma, because those tend to get conflated when, we're, when we haven't stepped into our recovery journey yet. And that's not, it's, it's no one's fault. They just get conflated, but they're very, very different processes. So the first element that I discovered in recovery is control. Now, this is going to sound self-evident. Of course, survivors want to be in control of themselves, their bodies, their situation, and the people they are with. Yes, but there's another element to control, and it's relinquishing control. So we've got two parameters within this one factor, the first maintaining control and the second relinquishing control. So the maintaining control is having really good, solid handle on your nose. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I have good boundaries. No, I'm not going to people please. The relinquishing control is a beautiful expression of yes. Yes to pleasure. Yes to not restricting food. Yes to relaxation, self-care, not overworking. There's, you know, there's hundreds of ways that we can say yes and be healthy. Mm, I love that distinction because, again, no and yes, but how can we do so healthfully and in a way that is honoring ourselves after our no or our yes has, again, been violated? So it's kind of learning what you like and trying to honor your voice and learn your truth. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, you said it perfectly. I'm not, I'm not even going to add anything there. Um, the second parameter is pleasure. So the book is called Reclaiming Pleasure because I really, 
it's of course it's a trauma book, but I wanted it to be a positive trauma book. Um, so really, pleasure is this key component. And within this chapter, I look at desire and arousal. So desire is the psychological process of wanting. Arousal is the physiological process of wanting. So really helping survivors understand their sexual template. What do they find sexy? What turns them on? Again, back to that sex um, sex positive parameters, consent and pleasure, right? So really getting a handle around that and whatever your sexual expression is, it's totally fine if it checks those two boxes. And then the third parameter is connection. Um, I wish healing and thriving was a solitary or autonomous process. I know for sure it is not. It, it, it is not. We have to be vulnerable. We have to show up as our authentic selves, express ourselves with our yeses, with our noes, letting people really see us, that intimacy component. Mm -hmm. Now, this does not mean that survivors have to be in a romantic or erotic relationship with another person, but they need to have friends, family, community. There has to be some container for connection. Mm. Wow. So much wisdom there. I would say that is often for me, at least was the hardest part because we have this beautiful self-discovery piece and then we have the connection piece where it's often so difficult to healthfully connect and communicate in relationship because that is generally where we've been wounded but it's also where we have the greatest opportunity to heal mm -hmm. So sexual trauma happens in the body, so it must be healed in the body. And sexual trauma happens in relationships, so it must be healed through relationship. Mm, so true. I'd love to talk about relationships and what they might look like if someone is in a relationship or friends with someone that is a survivor of any type of interpersonal trauma. Where do you find the most conflict arises? Oh, um, asking for details. So that's what I see the most. So if there's a partner, a friend, a parent, well, so if I'm the survivor, I would say, oh my gosh, I experienced sexual trauma as an 18 year old. And if you're this unsupportive partner, you'd be like, oh my gosh, you look totally fine. What happened? <laughs> Don't say that. Do not say that. Well, I, you seem like you're okay. I never saw any bruises. Like, what? when did this happen? And why didn't you tell anybody? I thought I was your best friend. Why didn't you tell me? Like, these are all the wrong things to say. Ugh. Shaking my head. I know. It's, it's, I find that unless you've been through it yourself in some way, shape, or form, it can sometimes be very hard to understand where someone's coming from um, or just have that you know, deep empathy if we haven't been through it ourselves. So in that case, really all we can do is learn and, and listen, I find is very valuable in offering, offering that validation piece. Yeah. So the validation, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Do you want to share anything else? If not, it, I'm totally fine. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. How can I offer you support? Do you want me to help you find a therapist? Do you think a support group would help? Do you want to do a march for survivors? Do you want to do some fundraising? You know, there's so many ways to be in community, to be in connection around our healing. Beautifully said. Yes. Do you find that um, with the, I'd love to go back to the eating disorder piece uh -huh. and the body dysmorphia. 
do you find that that could also, if someone's still battling with that, can come into their romantic relationships and take a toll? And if so, what does that look like? Yeah, that, that looks like not being able to settle into their body during sex most often. So they're so hyper aware and hypercritical of what their body looks like, um, still feeling like it's objectified or it's being taken from them or they don't they don't have good boundaries around it because they really haven't accepted their body. Um, I would say that's most often. So with partners of survivors, if I'm working with a couple, the partner is usually obsessed with, with their, the other person's body. Like they're so happy to be in connection and intimacy and having sex. But a lot of times the survivor is so in their head about what they look like or that they can't perform um, and performance lives in direct opposition to pleasure. Mm-hmm. So really my work with survivors is to helping them seek and sink into pleasure, what it is they like, not performance, which um, I'm totally pro porn, but I'm also pro knowing it's not sex education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes. I'll say that, right? Yes. That's not what you're supposed to, that's not what sex looks like typically. Oh, I definitely want to get into that, but just to um, piggyback off your last piece, a lot of times we can block our own connection because we don't believe we are worthy of being loved. So how could someone else see the good in us if we can't see it ourselves? And that is a true block to intimacy. It is. It is. Um, so then you have to go back and detach from the shame because yeah. again, the shame isn't yours. It's not yours to own. It's the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is definitely something universal is the guilt and the shame. Yeah. Yeah. I have not met a survivor that doesn't, that doesn't have it. Mm. Yeah. The, Lauren, I'll share this. When I see a somewhat, sometimes less shame, less guilt is in the case of stranger rape, which we know is this very small, small percentage of sexual trauma. So that's what the media likes to tell us rape is, right? Some dude jumps out of the bushes onto a girl, some dudes in the back of your car, over 85% of sexual trauma happens with someone known to the survivor. But when that stranger rape, the, the person feels like, oh my gosh, this happened to me. I had nothing to do with it. I yeah. was just trying to walk home. So there's a little bit less shame and blame, a little bit. Whereas someone that was raped by their partner, it's like, oh my gosh, well, I knew he was being abusive. Why did I stay in the relationship? I didn't say no. All of these horrible things that go through our head. I'm really happy you brought that up. That's really intriguing. And I didn't know that fact before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Something about the partnered relationship or even in marriage um, with the, I'd love to talk, talk about coercion because a lot of times when people think rape or assault, they think again, a stranger jumping out of the bushes, holding you down or at gunpoint. I would love to talk about coercion because oftentimes in my experience, that has been the case where they didn't allow me to say no and they kind of forced me to say yes. So then I felt like it was my own doing because I didn't feel safe enough to express that I didn't want to engage sexually. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that word coercion, it's so critical. Um, and, and I, would love to hear a little bit more from you, but in my perspective, it can look a lot of different ways. So sometimes that coercion and control can be your partner keeping your phone, not letting you see friends and family, controlling your money, um, 
controlling when you go to work, controlling who you go out with. If you are out blowing up your phone with text, you know, just that, that kind of obsessive, really controlling behavior. Um, but it sounds like in your case, it would happen more in intimate situations where you were just not given the opportunity to say no or protect your body. And I'm, maybe your partner was bigger than you. Maybe they were, who knows, who knows what the reason was. Yeah, it's, I'm happy you brought that up because it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so much of this yeah. is power and control we hear in domestic violence relationships. And oftentimes there will be sexual trauma in a domestic violence relationship. And that's how I experienced it. The coercion and control was often in manipulation form that, oh, if you really loved me, you would do this with me. If you don't do this with me, I'll have 10 other girls that would want to do it with me or just making me feel dumb or unsafe to say no so that I did it out of guilt or pressure. And I'd love to talk more about that obligation piece that when we date someone or especially as I identify as a woman, we often feel obligated to engage in sex with our partners. And I'd love to hear your perspective and your experience working with, I'm sure that is a universal feeling that people express. It, it is. And in the recovery process, the first obligation has to be to self. Literally, one of my weeks of homework for survivors is this week, you're going to be selfish. You literally are going to move through the world in the most selfish way that you possibly can just to help them understand this obligation to self. And obviously, I want them to have friends and family and be kind and compassionate and empathetic. But sometimes they just need a little bit of reminder of how important they are. Because every time we don't make ourselves an obligation that we forfeit our voice, I say we throw ourselves under the bus or there's a little bit of self-betrayal. And again, this is in no way pathologizing or blaming or finding fault. It's what survivors do. It's what women do, if we're honest. Right. It's what women do because we've been trained to be nice, go along, to get along, all of the things. Yeah. And put others needs before your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we over function and then we burn out and then we have chronic pain and illness and we wonder how we got here. Yes. And then we get (laughs) resentful and it's just this horrible cycle of self-abandonment. Thank you for talking about that. I'd love to wrap up on a high note. So would you mind talking about pleasure versus performance? If we circle back to the porn is an actual sex education, what is the difference between pleasure and performance? I feel like pleasure is a very mindful practice. So mindfulness is being in the moment without judgment. Can you even imagine entering a sexual experience, whether with yourself or with a partner, where you weren't in your head with judgment Mm -hmm. for yourself, for what you were supposed to do, sound like, smell like, taste like, perform like, just coming in with openness and with openness, curiosity, presence, and Mm non-judgment versus the performance. I mean, it's in the word. There's a goal. There's an objective. It's, it's supposed to do, be, smell, taste like something, right? And, and our bodies are supposed, supposed to look like this. So anytime that element comes in, I just feel it take, like it takes us away from ourselves. 
Yeah, it's it's so true. I love that you use the word non-judgment because so often when we're in an encounter with someone else, maybe we're not judging them so much, but we are so critical of ourselves. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I mean, if you're with a good partner, I just see this time and time again in my couples therapy, everybody's so happy to be in bed naked with somebody else, right? They're like, bonus no one's judging and if you have a judgmental partner get get rid of that partner yes yes oh yes i wish i could tell that to my 19 year old self <laughs> no what would you say us, are like the signs of a good sexual partner for us versus red flags that someone is cynical or hurtful for our mental health Mm -hmm. So there's really three factors here, again, that with the three that I, I talk to my couples about. Active appreciation. So every single day, if you are in a partnership, each of you are appreciating this, the other. So it might sound like, I, so, I really appreciate that you made my coffee today. Thank you so much for fill in the blank. So it's just that active appreciation so we're not taking each other for granted. The second one is giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Most often, miscommunication, hurt feelings happen because of mindlessness, not malice. So we yeah. can't be perfect all the time. We can't be on point on our game. But if you're really curious with your partner, oh, that hurt my feelings. Give them a chance to say, oh, shit, you're right. I was, I was being careless. I was thinking about myself in that moment. Everybody makes mistakes, so giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And then the third thing that healthy couples do is they talk about sex. Mm. So couples who talk about sex have better sex. Couples who are having better sex have healthier relationships. Noted. I'll use those for myself. <laughs> I, I got to say, Dr. Holly, like as someone that is a domestic violence and sexual violence survivor, being in my first healthy relationship of my life ever has been the greatest challenge of my life. Oh, yeah, it's what so comes hard. Up? What do you notice? It's again, I have a avoidance attachment style and I always assume the worst that, you know, he's wishing he was with a skinnier girl or he thinks I'm too much. He's getting tired of my drama. And something I talk about a lot on the podcast is those cycles of drama that Oftentimes, if we are in toxic and unhealthy relationships, we'll perpetuate them by creating chaos where there is none because stability can feel boring. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm just snapping. I don't I don't need to say anything. And if, and if that's what you're used to, that's what you're going to create yeah. until you can take a moment to step out of it in awareness, non-judgment, let yourself off the hook. You know, those, those systems were created because you had to survive, yeah. but it's not a great way to live, mm. right? So then yeah. having the awareness to step out, ooh, stability, yeah, it's not quite as exciting, but wow, does it feel way better in my nervous system. So true. <laughs> it's so true and not confusing lust with love. I heard a, a quote by a podcast I listened to. He said, chase the slow burn, not the spark. And I was like, that is very true. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. What advice would you give asking for a friend? Um, if someone has trauma responses during conflict in their relationship, uh, like the fawn response or the freeze, 
something for me personally, I will shut down with any sign of confrontation because in relationships prior, I had no say who'd be violent, angry, aggressive. So what would you say, and this is something people have also messaged me on that they relate to because I talk about it on my show, where we shut down in assertive situations after trauma. How can we kind of reclaim our own power? Lauren, for you, I'm wondering, I'm curious now when conflict comes up, because it should, if you yeah. tell me you and your partner are never in conflict, that's a red flag, yes. right? There, there's no one gets along all the time. Yeah. Do you notice when you're shutting down and could you say that to your partner? Hey, mm-hmm. I'm flooding. I'm freezing. I need to take a step back. Yeah. I like that word flooding. I do notice it. I say, Oh no, it's happening again. And I dissociate. It's, a, it's an out of body experience. Mm-hmm. So I could definitely say that. I don't know why I've never (laughs) thought of bringing that up. That would be helpful because then he gets offended and pissed off and thinks I'm ignoring him when really it's because I'm dissociating. Absolutely. Tell him what's happening for you. But please talk about this when you're not in conflict so you can say, hey, I'm going to tell you that I'm flooding or I'm dissociating. And that just means I need... 10 minutes, 20 minutes, however long you decide you need, I'm going to come back to the conversation. I do care so much, but I can't find my words in that moment. Mm, Thank you. I will definitely do that. I'll make him listen to this podcast. But (laughs) I I hope that you can um, touch on the uh, mindfulness piece. For me, something that I used to use was a uh, rubber band. And one of my greatest psychologists I've ever worked with told me about the five senses trick where you um, focus on what you're smelling, seeing, tasting, touching, etc. So can you talk about that mindfulness piece and how that helps in our recovery? So much of trauma recovery is about separating the past from the present and actually about separating the past and present from the future. Mm-hmm. So when we're in the past, we're in guilt, shame, blame. We're in the present moment. Lauren, I see you right now. You're perfectly safe right? You're, you're talking fluently, you're making good decisions. So we have the present and then the next is the future. And I call that taking ourselves to the bad movies. The future is projection. The future is worry. It's not here. It's not happening right now. So, so much of that mindfulness work is coming back to the present moment and using our body, our five senses, journaling, Um, sometimes even distraction is okay. I know not all therapists agree with this, but sometimes we need to watch Netflix, right? Just just to like, whoa, I need, you know, so I use a scale of one to 10 for my nervous system. Zero is catatonic, super depressed. 10 is panic attack. Mm -hmm. If I feel like I'm in an eight, maybe I just need a Netflix show and Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back to a six, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a great advice tip because it's knowing when to step back and knowing what our limits are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, too much of anything, too much Netflix is not good either, but this constant, I, so many of my survivors want to work so hard and they're yeah. so in self-awareness and mindfulness, like, okay, let's take a break. Like go do something where you're not thinking about your recovery. Mm. I know it becomes, I know you mentioned OCD, but sometimes it becomes this compulsion where we constantly feel like we have to fix ourselves and be working on ourselves. And it can be very exhausting. It's, it's too much. And, and our culture breeds it. 
even for non-survivors, right? Yeah. Our culture just breeds productivity. Yeah. Our, our culture emphasizes and glorifies always working on yourself, self-help, self-development, which is beautiful. But again, going back to that healthy balance. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to think of anything else there. Um, back to the couples piece. I, I loved where you were going talking about your partner. Um, I have a partner that wants to resolve conflict in the moment too. Mm -hmm. And I say he's a fast processor. I'm a slow processor. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with my intelligence. I think mm -hmm. I'm a smart person. I cannot think in the moment. Mm -hmm. Like he will win. If you're an outside observer, yeah. he would win every argument because I do what you do. I'm like, I, I, ooh, I, and I shut down and I walk away because mm -hmm. I can't find my words. Yeah. So again, this is, I just hope whoever's listening, you're validated. If you can't find your words, it's not any, any kind of fault or there's nothing wrong with you. It's a trauma response. Oh, yes. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much because it makes me feel less alone and less, uh, sometimes I feel like so broken and damaged. I'm like, what's wrong with me that I can't think, but it's sometimes we don't have the space or the capacity to have that difficult conversation. And it's in both of our best interests to come back to it when we're both ready. Yeah. Yes. Just make sure that there's a bookend. So yeah. don't say let's, I don't love, let's talk about this later. Cause it's not quite specific enough. So that's why I said, yeah, ask for an hour, ask for whatever time, you know, you need mm -hmm. because your partner will then feel anxious if he yeah. feels like you're not coming back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's holding each other accountable to it as well. Wow. I think I could talk to you a whole nother hour about just couples issues and conflict resolution in itself. <laughs> it all goes. You can do that way. again. Yes. Do that I would again. love to. Yeah. I would love to. Um, because I, I find that it all goes, you know, it's all intertwined, you know, having healthy relationships in general can be difficult and, you know, it could be challenging, let alone trauma on top of it kind of adds a whole nother, it can feel like a weight sometimes. It can, it can. But that, that self-awareness, letting ourselves off the hook, yeah. um, really stepping into what we need, our boundaries, using our voice, but always with compassion. Mm, always, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Holly. I love this conversation. I feel like the time just flew by. So can you tell our listeners, I'm sure that they will want to check you out, what are you currently working on and where can people find you? Thank you so much. So I'm on Instagram, Facebook, social media. It's at Dr. Holly Richmond and it's D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. Um, my website is drhollyrichmond.com. Um, so I do private practice, but I'm excited to tell you in the next month or so, I've created an online course 10 module online course that is um, a reflection of the book. It's not a direct translation because I wanted to give people different experiences, but it's called Reclaiming Pleasure, the course. So that will be out soon. And then there's going to be Reclaiming Pleasure, the lab, which is going to be group coaching. So I'm really excited. So we've got the book, the course, and the coaching product. Yeah. So I just, I want to bring survivors together. Oh, that's so important, having that sense of community. I love that you're doing that. Congratulations. Thank so you. Awesome. It's, um, it's, you know, almost, it's almost ready. It's, you know, it's my first <laughs> course. There's so many 
growing pains and anxiety and, and all these things, putting this, you know, I feel like the book was my COVID baby and now it's living in the world. I'm like, okay, so. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, what else? Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. I can't wait to check it out. And I am so excited to read your book. Even the cover is beautiful and, and makes me want to engage. Oh. So that's amazing work you're doing, Dr. Holly. Thank you. And just um, please know for the listeners, it's not just um, theoretical reading. Every chapter has exercises, some somatic, some journaling, but there's, this is very um, somatic. Yeah. yeah. It's just very body based and there's things to do. You're not just reading. Oh, that's so important. Cause I love that it's hands-on cause oftentimes we can have that insight, but then how are we going to practically apply it to our daily lives? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I hope that that gives you and other readers what you need. Yes, for sure. Oh, this is so good. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really an honor and a privilege to speak with you today. I had the best time with you too. And please, we can talk about couples next, more couple stuff next time. But um, <laughs> thank you. Your questions were fantastic. If anybody has questions, Instagram, you know, I'm, I'll re reply to messages. So that's a great way or through my website. Yeah. For sure. And I'll link all that in the show notes for people to check you out. Awesome. Thank you, Lauren.